we will be looking at the book of Nehemiah chapter 1. And so if you have a device, Bible, would like to open there, the text should be up on the monitors. Um, let, let's read the text together, and then I'll, I'll, I'll charge in and uh, dig into this passage and see what the Lord has for us. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your, servants, your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. When I first became a Christian, which is now about 50 years ago, one of the things that came with the package, so to speak, of all the things that God brought into my life in saving me and rescuing me, one of the components of that was a love for the church, a love for the, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, that just came in along with a whole lot of other things. I mean, becoming a Christian has kind of a package, you know, seeing something of the glory of God in Jesus, seeing my need, my personal need for divine help, seeing the love of God in the death of Jesus, seeing that my sins were forgiven, seeing that God has given his spirit to reside in my own soul, but also that at that moment, I was adopted into an entirely new household. 
the church. People from all walks of life, as diverse as you can imagine in personality and background, in appearance. But one thing in common, everyone purchased by the same blood and adopted by the same loving Father. That has proven to be enough, enough reason to stay together, to worship together, serve side by side, to be the church. I began to realize over time that this was the plan of God. Now, I didn't realize it at first. When I first became a Christian, I thought it was all about me. God saved me. Isn't this wonderful? God loves me. Jesus died for me. The Holy Spirit worked and awakened my heart and adopted me into his family, into his household. And I thought the whole world was about me. God existed for me. And it was an amazing sense of feeling loved and cared for. But as I grew and matured and realized what God had placed in my heart for the people of God, I began to realize his plan was actually bigger than me. That it wasn't actually all about me. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such things, that she might be holy and without blemish. It began to become apparent to me that I was being brought into something much bigger, much grander, something so much more spectacular than my own personal life. J.A. Packer wrote a wonderful book called A Passion for Faithfulness. In it, he comes to this conclusion, so the church that Christ loves and sustains is the key feature of God's plan for both time and eternity. And care for the church's welfare, which is what love for the church means, is an aspect of Christ-likeness that Christians must ever seek to cultivate. I ask you a question. Do you love the church? Do you love God's people? Do you care about God's people? At what point in your spiritual maturity are you at? Do you realize? I hope every one of you realized how much God loves you, that Christ died for you, that has forgiven your sins, that has given you an eternal home to exist in the presence of God. I hope you know that. But do you also realize you've been brought into something much bigger, much broader, something so much more spectacular, something so much more glorious. Do you see the church? Do you love the church? Our study is a continuation. We've been through the book of Ezra. Now we are entering into the book of Nehemiah. Historically, these are one book. In the same, the two are combined. In the Hebrew Bible, they are one and the same. In the Greek Septuagint, the Bible that Jesus would have had in his time, these two books were one book. We have them separated, but they are in fact part 
of one story. The storyline is about God restoring his people after being in exile, restored to their homeland, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to be restored in worship, to be restored to being the people of God. That story in the Old Testament is not disconnected to our story and the church in the New Testament. And so we can look back on what God was doing in regathering and reforming and reestablishing his people, and we can make wise, applicable application to the church today. Again, J.I. Packer, on the contrary, Christ's church was to be and now is nothing more nor nothing less than the Old Testament covenant community itself in a new and fulfilled form that God had planned for it from the start. It is Israel internationalized and globally extended in, through, and under the unifying dominion of Jesus, the divine Savior who is its King. People of God in the Old Testament, God's plan working then, moving forward to the church in the New Testament. We, you and I, if you're here this afternoon and you are in Christ, you are a part of that same story that we're reading about in Nehemiah. So as we start fresh in this book, even though it's a combined book with Ezra, I want to begin by answering the question, who is Nehemiah? The last phrase in the text we read said, and I was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer. What is a cup bearer? It is kind of what it sounds like. This is the taste tester guy who works for the king, who tests the wine and the food for poison before the king eats it. That was his job. Assassinating kings was big business back in the day, and poisoning the king was the most subtle and the least messy way of getting the job done. So therefore, you hired a cup bearer. Here, you try it first. You drink this first. You taste this steak first, and we'll see if you're still standing, if you're not sick, if you survive it, then I know it's okay for me to eat it. That was his job. But it sounds like kind of a demeaning job. Let's, let's, let's find some low lackey who's just willing to risk his life and would just force him to eat stuff that might be poison. But it really wasn't like that at all. Actually, this was quite a highly honored position. This was a special role for somebody to take. It was, it was more like, let's think of the head of the Secret Service who guards the president, who is near the president often and personally interacting with and conversing with the president, making sure that the president stays safe. He's the guy who took it upon himself to be responsible that nobody gets to the president to bring him harm. That put him in close proximity to the king, which often led to him being in a position of actually giving advice or counsel or input to the king, as well as a friendship developing between Nehemiah and the king. Did you not see the bodyguard with Kevin Costner and, and, and Whitney Houston? You know what I'm talking about. That's how it works, and that's what was happening. It was a position that required the 
highest level of loyalty, the highest level of integrity, the highest level of devotion, and Nehemiah was the man chosen for that job. Now note, Nehemiah was a Jew in exile. He's in a foreign land. He's not in his homeland. He was probably born and raised in Babylon, grew up in that context. But what we see in Jeremiah's life is he is living out the instructions of Jeremiah. If you've been here for a while, when we studied through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was the one who prophesied to these Jews, you are going into exile, and here's how I want you to go into exile. I want you to go into exile willingly. And when you get there, I want you to seek the welfare of that city. I want you to go and be good citizens in a foreign land. And here we see Nehemiah following that very advice. He's not chafing under the or resenting his captors, but he is serving them and serving them in such an effective way that he is actually being given this position of honor right next to the king himself. We'll see this story play out. Now you begin to realize, because Nehemiah responded the way God instructed through Jeremiah, God placed him in a friendship with the king. And because God placed him in a friendship with the king, God used him in a vital role in restoring the church. We begin to see the plan of God playing out. And we begin to see how important Simply being faithful to what God instructs becomes the means for God to use and work in miraculous and powerful ways to do his plan, build the church. So Nehemiah was a man of great character and great accomplishments. What jumps off the pages of this book as we study through, we'll see what kind of guy Nehemiah is. He was a man who was dynamic, he was devoted, he was humble, he was zealous, he was wise, he was patient, he was brave, he was tenacious as well as generous. He was a great leader. He was a man of real presence. When he came into the room, everybody noticed. When he was about to speak, everybody listened. He was an assertive, outspoken, get-things-done kind of a guy. He was active. He stepped in. When there was a need, he stepped in. When it was quiet, he spoke up. That's the kind of man that he was. But the best way to view characters in the Bible, especially the good ones, and Nehemiah is one of the good ones, is like this. Look at what the grace of God can do in a person who is faithful to God. That's how we should read our Bibles. When you're reading about characters in the Bible and you see good things happening and you see admirable qualities in a person in the Bible, and there's some bad ones and there's some good ones, all of them except Jesus are a mix of both, but oftentimes we see a good character in the Bible and here's the best way to read it. Look at what the grace of God can do when he has someone who is devoted and faithful to him. I wish I could convince all the women 
in Christendom to read Proverbs 31 that way. I'm concerned that Proverbs 31 has Wonder Woman in it, and most of the women read Proverbs 31 and say, I will never measure up. I could never do half the things on the list of Proverbs 31 woman. I would just encourage you instead, read Proverbs 31 and say, look at all the possibilities and options of the grace of God in your life. See what God can do with a woman who trusts the Lord. And for Nehemiah, see what God can do in a man who just lives faithfully before the Lord. From the outset, one of the most instructive and inspiring aspects of Nehemiah's life is that he begins this calling of God's grace in his life with prayer. Chapter 1 gives us Nehemiah praying. Second point, Nehemiah's prayer. He begins with prayer. So we are seeing a man who carries a strong concern for the people of God. He meets up with his friend Hanani. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth, Hanani, tell me, how are the people of God doing? How's it going down in Judea? How's it going in Jerusalem? How are God's people doing? And he gets the report that they are in trouble. And immediately he is crushed. He's broken. The bad news about people a long ways away that are God's people troubles him. I find this a bit in my own soul. I had the chance to interact with other pastors. And so when I rub shoulders and get together and have coffee or breakfast with another pastor in the area, near or far, how is the church doing? And when I hear a good report, it's exciting and I'm encouraged because I love seeing local churches be healthy and thriving in the grace of God. But on the chance that I hear a report that there's division in the church, there's strife in the church. Oh, we're dealing with a very difficult situation. And there's attitudes and division and strife and people are, and, and it always breaks my heart. Because these are our family. This is our household. This is part of what God is doing. And so Nehemiah hears a report. Church in Jerusalem is doing terrible. It's not, it's not going well. Now, this get-it-done kind of guy, you can only imagine his personality was, you hear bad news, hear about a problem, he is on it. He is after it. He's going to do something about it. And yet, what we see, he stops, he pauses, and he prays. He prays first. He prays first, and he prays for a long time. We have a paragraph, a few verses. What we can construct together is he spent about four months in a season of prayer. That doesn't mean he read verses 4 to 10 over and over again of 10,000 times over a four-month period. And let's assume he still had to go to work. He still had a job. He still had to drink the wine for the king and test all the food and 
fulfill his responsibilities. But, but what we see is, is a man that was cut to the heart with bad news about the people of God, and he enters into a season of praying, in-depth, ongoing, morning, night, and noon, crying out to God, pouring out his heart, calling out to God to pray. Not a few weeks ago, myself and Bill and Tim, sort of the leadership team, elders of the church here, we were talking and planning and thinking and, and, and talking into the, into the future. What is the next year going to look like? And what is God putting on our hearts? And what direction are we going to be going? And what should we be emphasizing and, and, and teaching and, and, and doing? And, and the conversation was, was starting to take form, but I so appreciate Tim chiming into this conversation with a, with a burden and a heart to say, I really believe we need to begin with a season of prayer. That before we launch into something, this or that or the other thing, could we just, could we pause and could we start, could we make phase one, step one of initiating a season of prayer? And of course, as soon as he said it, we were just all in. That's wise. That's good. That's exact. That was from the Lord. We, we, we want to do that. And he's going to be preaching here in a couple weeks, and you'll be hearing more detail about that and, and just really calling us. And I hope that this message today ends up sort of being the, you know, greasing the skid, so to speak, and preparing our hearts for us as a congregation to enter into a season of prayer. Let's pray first. Let's pray patiently. Let's get before the Lord and let's, let's give God the opportunity to speak and to move and to act before we rush into this, that, and the other thing. So what I would like to spend a little time with is helping us all learn to pray well and sort of press into this prayer of nehemiah's in nehemiah chapter one break it down in a few components and in a sense sort of instruct us in how to pray prayer is so important i was i i a few months ago i i sort of stepped into a difficult season in my life um, i've been pastoring for 23 years and i've had dozens of discouraging little episodes and waves of feeling weary or discouraged. Uh, this, one, this one was a little different. Actually, it was quite different. Normally in my pride, when I hit a wave of discouragement, I say, okay, I'm going to press in, I'm going to pray, I'm going to seek the Lord, and I'll come through it. And God will meet me, and he always does, and I come through it. But maybe when I've done all that, I could go to community group or include it in a sermon and say, hey, I had a tough time, but God met me. I sought the Lord. I came through it, and it's all good. But this time was different, and I knew in my heart, part of it, God doing a death blow to my pride, I knew quickly, I need to talk to somebody. I, I can't do this one alone. I shouldn't try to do this one alone, and thank God I have a wonderful wife who listens well and so the conversation started there 
I thank God for a, a team of Bill and Tim and their wives, Kit and Becca, involved, talking. Here's what's going on in my heart and talking. I'm thankful for our denomination. We've got a regional leader. I give, get on the phone. Eric, Eric, we need to talk. Do you got, can I get on your calendar? I need to share with you some things that are going on in my heart. I'm, I'm making a long story out of this. This is really not the point, but you'll... It puts me in contact with another pastor who, who seems to have a gift in really counseling pastors. So I'm, I'm on a call with a pastor in Toronto, Canada. And he shared some things. It was very helpful. It was very encouraging for my soul. In that conversation, he gave me a, a, a metaphor, a, an illustration about prayer. This man is a real man of prayer, and he was really encouraging me to pray. He was describing for me a little bit of winters in Toronto, which are completely unlike winters in Southern California, if you hadn't noticed. Here in Southern California, when we say it was the winter, we say, well, I wonder what, what flowers bloom better in the winter than in the summer. But in Toronto, you don't ask that question. Nothing grows in the winter in Toronto. Everything goes dormant. Everything is dead except inside the greenhouses. They build greenhouses where the environment is controlled, and inside the greenhouses, things can grow. Plants can grow. Vegetables can grow. Flowers can grow. And so he said, you could be storming through the blizzard outside. It's 30 below zero, and you step into the greenhouse, and it's 70 degrees, mild, controlled temperature, controlled humidity, and inside that greenhouse, things can grow. He said, Ron, prayer is like stepping inside the greenhouse. As hard as life is, as harsh as things can be outside, all you need to do is step inside the greenhouse, step inside of prayer, and all of a sudden you are in a controlled environment where things can become clear, things can grow, things can happen, life happens inside the greenhouse. So when you find yourself in a harsh winter season, here's my encouragement. You've got to get yourself inside the greenhouse, and you got to spend time there. I mean, don't just drop off your shopping list to God. I mean, get inside that environment and linger there and spend some time with the Lord in that controlled environment and get your soul refreshed and encouraged. When Nehemiah prays, he begins his prayer with the majesty of God. He addresses the Lord. Oh, Lord of heaven. When you and I decide to pray, more often, too often, many times, maybe I should just speak for myself. When I decide it's time to pray, I am consumed with some need I have in my life. That's the reason I'm praying. I have become acutely aware of something I don't have, something I need, some desperate need, some desperate situation, and so I'm going to go pray. And so I 
approach prayer with my need consuming my soul. And that's kind of my starting point. Nehemiah teaches us something different. He steps into the greenhouse. He approaches God and begins with the majesty of God. Because, you know, in order to make a request, you have to approach. I was recalling times early in our marriage when I was not making a lot of money, and we didn't have a lot of money, and there were often times when we ran out of money. And so when we ran out of money, we'd have to put our heads together and think, okay, what are we going to do? Now, sometimes in those conversations, occasionally the idea would pop up, why don't you ask your dad for some money? That was an option. But, you know, in that moment, as soon as that was the recommendation, everything shifted in my soul. Now I had to think about, now how am I going to approach my dad for some money? Now all of a sudden the whole, it wasn't just we needed some cash to pay this bill or make this purchase or buy some food, whatever it was, we just, and we didn't have enough. Now all of a sudden I had to think about actually going to someone, a real person, and asking for help. And now all of a sudden it was the approach that was on my mind. How am I going to ask? Who am I asking? How do I enter? How do I approach? How do I start this conversation? And not that it was difficult to ask my dad for money at all. I mean, it would be glad for me to just call up and say, hey, I need some money. But you understand what I'm saying. In order to make a request from somebody, you have to approach. And Nehemiah says, oh, God of heaven, God of heaven. So, God of heaven is, is not a statement about the location of God as if it were like the, getting the zip code or the area code right in order to find God and get in touch with God. He's in heaven like it's a location. No, it is a, it is a phrase that is declaring that God is above. He's in the heaven above. Not so much his location, but what is being talked about here is God's transcendence. That he is above all things. He has created all things and he exists in the sense above all of creation. Again, try to stop your mind from thinking spatially and think in terms positionally. He is over all creation. He exists not dependent on creation. In fact, quite the opposite. Creation depends on him. So to say God, the Lord of heaven, is to reference and acknowledge God's highness, greatness, his majesty, his above allness that is a part of who he is. You see, this is how things get put into perspective when we approach God and begin to pray. You begin to acknowledge who you are approaching and how high he is, how above us he is God and not a man. He is the creator. He is not part of the creation. We are created. He is not. 
And so we are, we are approaching a being, a person. We are approaching the Lord who is above all things. This is the way to begin praying because when we rightly acknowledge God and come into his presence, everything begins to find its proper place. God, ourselves, our problems, our needs. You begin with who God is. Oh, the transformation and the healing and the power that would take place if we as Christians studied who God is and truly came to terms with his majesty and his greatness. And when we approach him as such, that's when everything else. So as I come rushing into the presence of God, I need this, I need this, this is going wrong. God, you need to fix this. You need to take care of that person, get rid of them, help them do this. Just pause. It's going to take four months. We're going to take some time. Okay, first two weeks is on the majesty of God. We're going to acknowledge who he is. Look up. The Lord is above, but the Lord is not far away. He is transcendent, but he's also imminent, meaning he remains in. So Nehemiah identifies this God by referencing God as the one who keeps covenant and has steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. So now do you see what's happening here? O Lord of heaven, Lord above transcendent, the Lord who keeps his promises that he's made to us, who has steadfast love for us. And now we begin to see transcendence and we begin to see imminence. Oh, he is far above, but he is not far away. He has made himself near to us. And so we begin to see God in light of these two attributes of his, his transcendence and his imminence. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, when the disciples came to Jesus, Jesus, we watch you pray. Teach us how to pray. We don't know what you're doing. We don't know how, you, how to do it. He says, here's how you start. Father, who is in heaven. Do you hear the similar connection? Okay, Father, the one who is, lives in a promised commitment to his children, who shows steadfast love towards them, our Father, who is in heaven. Oh, Father, who is near and imminent, in heaven, who is above and transcendent. That's who we are approaching in prayer. How different this is from, okay, hey God, it's me. <laughs> One of the good people just came from church, go to church every week. Did I mention I'm one of the pastors? Husband of one wife, father of five. Okay, surely, God, I have your attention now. And I have something to ask from you. Do you see the different approach? I, okay, we can laugh at ourselves for a moment. We have all approached God something like that. God, it's me. Did you forget who I was? 
Do you know how much I've given? Do you know how much I've served? Do you know what I've done? God, God, what? It's me. Don't you remember? Here's my resume. Here's my list. Okay, that's one way to approach your requests, your list that you need from God. Nehemiah takes an entirely different approach, which leads him in an entirely different direction. Nehemiah goes to the majesty of God first, which causes him to make a left turn into confession. If I approach God with my resume, it's me, Lord, you know me, you owe me, and here's what I need. Nehemiah goes, O Lord of heaven, covenant maker, covenant keeper, steadfast love toward his people. And that approach causes his next turn in his prayer, an unexpected turn to many of us, but makes perfect sense. Confession. The burdened man, the man of action, approaches God in such a way that causes him to set aside his concerns, put pause on the need, and takes a turn toward confession. Because, friends, in the presence of a holy God, the real problems come to light. In acknowledging God's covenant faithfulness and steadfast love, it becomes clear what the real problem is. Now that I say it, we've sinned against you, even I and my father's house. Oh, as I'm approaching your majesty and thinking about the covenant that you made, the laws that you gave to Moses and the promises that you made to gather us and keep us and provide for us. I mean, promise, land, milk and honey, provision, defeating enemies, all these wonderful promises. You said, if you will follow me, if you will obey me, if you'll be devoted to me, all these things are yours. But if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. But if you return to me, I will regather you. It doesn't matter how far away you are. It doesn't matter how lost you think. You could be at the ends of the earth. You could be on the other side of the globe. It doesn't make any difference. I can regather you from wherever you have wandered away from me if you return to me. When Nehemiah prays, it was not, oh God, that evil king Artaxerxes, he's ruining everything. It's those Persians that are our problem, and they are the trouble. It's those people beyond the river. You remember the people beyond the river in the book of Ezra? The people who oppose the work. There's the problem. Those people are the problem. God, I'm here on behalf of you and your people to deal with all the bad people that's making everything wrong in the world. But when he approaches God and sees his majesty and recounts the steadfast love of the Lord and how secure the promises are, it dawns on him how unfaithful. And it realizes there's really just one reason why things are the way they are, not supposed to be in this world. There really is only one core reason why things in this life are not the way they're supposed to be. It's because we've turned away, because we've rebelled. 
because we didn't follow the Lord. We didn't trust the Lord. And things keep going from bad to worse in that context. And now we get born and raised into an entire world that is in some kind of state of rebellion and denial about God. And we're trying to make life work in this context. And we get into the presence of the Holy One and it becomes clear what the real problem is. Our own unfaithfulness to you. This is what comes out in Nehemiah's prayer. This is what comes to mind when he is in God's presence acknowledging God's greatness. Lord, you have been faithful. We have not. We must acknowledge that we cannot first make our appeal and bring our request until we've walked through this door and acknowledged this truth. We need divine help. Gets to verse 10, and he makes his appeal. Verse 10 says, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Where do you go? In light of unfaithfulness, you approach God, he's holy, you approach him, you see his majesty, you recognize the contrast, you recognize his promises are true, but we have been unfaithful. Where do you go from there? And Nehemiah moves and appeals to God's mercy. I appeal to your mercy. I appeal to your glory. You acknowledge at that moment what Jonah had to finally come to terms with, that salvation belongs to the Lord. That we are in a predicament, a predicament that we cannot save ourselves. We need divine intervention. Moses made the same appeal to God back in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let me read a few verses there. People have failed. Moses gets before God. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I pray to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us, say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, and he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people, your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Do you see what's happening in the prayer? The, the appeal turns the tables and makes it all about God. Lord, our real problem is too difficult for us to solve on our own. You prove that to us by giving us the commandments that we failed to keep. And after a convincing run of failure, you alone provided the way, ultimately by giving your only son to take our place, to be the satisfaction that we couldn't satisfy, to be the atonement that we needed, 
to be the substitute in our place where we could not stand. You see, Nehemiah's praying the gospel. Nehemiah is running through a sequence here where he is praying the gospel. Oh, Lord, holy God, above all, you are great. I confess we have been unfaithful. Lord, I appeal to your name. Okay, don't make it about us. This is not going to land with it being about our greatness or our faithfulness or our goodness. We are not going to merit this. But, but Lord, here's, here's my appeal. Do it for your glory. Do it for your name. Do it because you rescued us. Do it because you were faithful. So that at the end of the story, it actually is and will be about the glory of God alone. Okay, the conclusion. I'm near the end. Worship team, you can make your way up here. He closes in the last verse with alluding to the plan. Here's the statement. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Okay, a little bit of a cliffhanger here, but he doesn't give us really any information. He just kind of makes the statement, alludes to something. So Nehemiah has some kind of plan forming in his mind, but he's not telling us yet. Maybe, maybe to leave us stuck in the prayer a little longer. Chapter 2, the plan will begin to unfold. He doesn't want us to move on too quickly, but he has to make his request known to the Lord. Okay, Lord, after four months of seeking you, the plan is beginning to formulate. I'm about to take some action. So I'm asking that you grant success in the next steps that I'm going to take. But our Bible is vague. The details are not given to us, not filled out, so that you and I can linger in chapter 1 a little longer. What can we take away from this first chapter of Nehemiah? From this message? Friends, being a Christian comes with a love for and a concern for the church. That's part of belonging to Christ. You should be carrying that on your heart. And Nehemiah shows us in almost exaggerated terms that reality. And also God is calling us to participate in what Jesus is doing. Jesus said, I will build my church. That's what I am doing. And that is what you and I have been adopted into. That's the plan. That's what he's doing and what we get to be a part of. But in order to be effective and fruitful with our involvement in the plan of God for his glory and with our lives, our involvement must begin with prayer. This is how we can ensure that our efforts will be according to God's plan and done with God's power. The gospel work is what you and I must be all about. Let me close with a quote. It's kind of a paraphrased quote. I was listening to a message from Alistair Begg. I'm not sure I got all the wording right. So, But he said 
something close to this. As long as there are people in our community that have not heard a compelling and reasonable explanation of the gospel and have not witnessed a compelling display of God's grace in the people of God and have not been given a clear and compelling challenge to repent and believe, our work here is not finished. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what we've been called to be a part of by being adopted into the people of God, into the church, in order for us to do this work and to do it effectively and for it to be fruitful, we want to begin by praying. Let's stand together.